chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. And if anybody needs a Bible, Stu is making his way through. If you just lift up your hand and give him some kind of an indication that you need a Bible, he will drop one off to you. And we're in Romans chapter 14 tonight. Now, recently someone asked me the question, by technical definition... What is the difference between a fruit and a vegetable? (laughs) And seemingly elementary of a question as it was, I found that I really didn't know. And I replied by simply saying, well, I don't know the technical definition, but I do know that if it's a fruit, I probably like it. And if it's a vegetable, I probably don't. Is (laughs) Is that good enough? And so then they, of course, filled me in and they told me, well, a a fruit technically is something that carries the seed within it. And and thus, I was shocked to find that tomatoes and cucumbers are actually fruits, that they're not in the vegetable family at all. And nobody knows what a banana is, because uh, that doesn't fall into either category. So, you know, there's all kinds of confusion when you try to get into the technical definition of fruits and vegetables. But though there may be some confusion about these things and the mix-up of traditional views and whatnot, uh, upon examination and inspection, an answer can be obtained. You can discern which is which by simply looking at what you're wondering about. Jesus told a parable in Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30. He said that, There was a man who sowed good seed in his field. And while he slept and was waiting for the seed to germinate, an enemy came. And he sowed tares, or weeds, among the wheat that the farmer had planted. Now the tares that Jesus was speaking of, that the enemy came in and sowed at night, was a a, a seed or a plant that's called the bearded darnel. And the thing about the bearded darnel is that it looks exactly like the wheat while it's springing up and in its growth stage. You can't look at the two things side by side and tell the difference. It isn't until just before harvest, just before the time that you would thrust in the sickle and gather the harvest, that then you can tell the difference. Because the bearded darnel will continue to grow and stand upright, being without any real seed-bearing, uh, you know, wheat-bearing quality. And the wheat heads, the true crop, will begin to bow over. The weight of the wheat within the, you know, head at the top of the grain, it will begin to overbear the strength of the stem and the wheat will begin to bow and the bearded darnel will stay upright because it doesn't have the weight of the wheat. And it isn't until that time of harvest that you can tell the difference between the two. And Jesus was giving this parable, but it it was concerning things that look alike and that are imperceptible or the differences are imperceptible upon initial observation And how do we handle it when we can't tell, simply by observing something, what exactly it is? Fruit or vegetable? Wheat or tare? But what makes someone a Christian? Because you can have two people that, by all outward observations, appear to be the same, and yet, are they? And can you tell if someone's a Christian simply by observing them outwardly, the way they dress, the things they do, the behavior or the lifestyle that they participate in. Is that enough to determine the true state of someone's soul if they're saved? Or is the substance of salvation a deeper thing, something that's under the surface that cannot be observed outwardly? 
This is the question that the Apostle Paul is placing before us tonight as we come into chapter 14. Can someone's Christianity be proven in the visible makeup of their lives, or does its verity lie in the unseen realm? And if it's in the unseen, then what does that mean in terms of what value should we place upon what is seen or the outward things? It's interesting to me as I consider certain characters throughout Scripture. Jesus sat at the table at the Last Supper after three and a half years of being in ministry with the twelve apostles and he put forth this statement. He said, one of you will betray me. One of you is going to betray me. And it's interesting to me that no one at the table knew who it was. Nobody looked and said, it's Judas. Everybody knows. He's had that look in his eye from the beginning. He's had that questionable aura about him. He's done those controversial things. I think Peter perhaps was thinking, I know it's James and John. It's one of those two. And I know that James and John were thinking, it's Peter. He is a lousy apostle. You know, he's just never going to make it in these things, always screwing up. Now, no one at the table pointed the finger at someone else. Each responded by asking the question, Lord, is it I? But nevertheless, I find it interesting that Nobody knew that it was Judas who would, Jesus actually said that he's a devil. One of you is a devil. And yet nobody knew it. They were not able to tell simply by outward observation. It's interesting to me that David, the greatest king in all of Israel's history, the gold standard by which all the other kings were measured, that he was overlooked seven times by the prophet Samuel when he came to his house, that he was the last one who by outward observation would be the one that God would choose, anoint, and use so mightily. It's interesting to me that the apostles, the twelve that Jesus picked, handpicked, that would turn the world upside down and make, in a sense, through the power of God, Christianity what it is today that they were nothing more than blue-collar fishermen, tax collectors, nobodies, if you would, people that would never measure up to the religious standard of perfection of their day, never to be the selection, and yet it was through them that God did such mighty things. What does it tell us? Well, it teaches us, as Paul's going to point out tonight, that much of Christianity lies on the inward, and very little, if any at all, can be conclusive by just simply looking at the outward. One of the great errors of the Christian church, both historically in times past and also presently right now, is placing the defining characteristics of Christianity upon external behaviors and appearances rather than on the Word of God and the work of Christ within someone's life. The result of this error is great division within the body of Christ. I one time counted all of the churches in a particular city that were listed in a yellow page listing for a single year, and I found that there were 796 different churches in a single city, about a size of 200,000 people. Now I can understand a few. I know that you can't put them all in one, but 800 churches in a city of 200,000? Great division in the body of Christ. It's also resulted in a great attitude of condescension from one group upon another. And in other areas, great attitudes of judgmental condemnation towards others for the things that they do and believe and practice. It's also produced an unbiblical behavioral code of conformity. An unwritten rule or code of behavioral conformity that if you're to call yourself a Christian, then you better come in line with these practices, these principles, these things that we do that are an evidence of who we are, whereby the church has sought to change people and cause them to just fall in line with the image that they seek to present. The conclusion of where Paul is going with this is that our behavioral convictions is not what makes us Christians. He begins in verses 1 and 2 by drawing a distinction between two types of believers. If you'll look with me, Romans chapter 14, the first verse, he says, Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, 
but not to doubtful disputations or analytical judgments or arguments. For one believes that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. He he divides Christians into two camps generally here at the opening of this text. He says, first of all, there is him that is weak. The weak believer, the person who's weak in faith, who is more or less a vegetarian, that doesn't partake of certain meats. And then, by implication, of course, those that are strong. The strong is the one who believes that he may eat all things. The weak eats simply vegetables. Now, this was no small debate in the early church. If you know anything about the history of what was going on in those days, this was a huge debate among the Christians in that time. The majority of the meat that people would eat, if you were going to have a barbecue or you were going to cook some steaks out on the grill on a Saturday night, or, you know, it, it wouldn't be a Saturday night, in those, it would be a, a Thursday night or something, you know. If you were going to, you, you know, go out and do, do that, then the majority of the meat came from what were called the, the temple shambles or the, the, the temple markets. And basically what those were is that when people would offer a sacrifice to a false god, to, you know, uh, Baal or Diana of the Ephesians or, or any of the numerous multitudes of false gods, they would bring this meat to the idol's temple, the false god's temple. And all of the remnants of that meat would then be sold in the temple shamble, which was simply the market that was joined with or linked to the temple of the idol. And you know, you could get a really good deal on this meat because, uh, you know, it was discounted and, and, and it was in abundance. There was a lot of it. And so you could get really good meat at a really good rate at these shambles. But the ethical question was then raised by the church. Is it right to buy or eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols? Now, there were some making a strong case that would say that to eat meat that was sold in the shambles, was to partake in the sacrifice and to fellowship with the demons. That you were literally fellowshipping with demons when you partook of meat that was offered to a false god. And then there was another group of Christian people that would leave the temple market carrying a bag of meat with a big smile saying, hey, I just got a really good deal on a T-bone. And they had no problem in their mind at all about eating it or where it came from or what the the sake was uh, and all that. And, And so those that abstained and said, no, we can't do that. That's unethical. It isn't right. They, by default, would pass judgment upon the group that would eat from it. They would say, well, how can they be call themselves Christians and eat? meat that was sacrificed to an idol. How can they, being professed believers in Jesus Christ, the true and the living God, knowing the commandments of God, eat meat that comes from that place? I just can't see it. Those people are not even saved. I can't understand how it could possibly be that they would. And then those that ate, they spoke condescendingly upon the abstainers. They looked at them and said, those superstitious legalists... Don't they realize that the idol is nothing? That, it, that who cares? These people are lost. They're, they're sacrificing it to nothing. There is no Diana of the Ephesians. There is no Baal. There is nothing. They're just bringing their lamb, and I'm being the beneficiary of their stupidity. And so what's the big deal? Those superstitious legalists, you know, and they, and they would speak condescendingly upon these people that had these strong convictions. And evidently, this was a a major problem in many of the churches in the New Testament times. Paul wrote to the Corinthians there in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, about this, uh, you know, this very issue that was going on in Corinth. And he wrote to them and he gave them his opinion. He said in uh, verse 1 of chapter 8, he says, Now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up but love edifies. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing, yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, but that there is none other God but one. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, 
as there be lowercase gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge. For some, with conscience of the idol, unto this hour, eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. He, he says essentially that, hey, yeah, there are things that are called gods, called idols. Diana, Baal, you know, Semiramis and Tammuz and all these pagan things. Yeah, they have a name. And yeah, they are believed on by the heathen. But we know better. We know that they don't exist, that they're not real. And the things that we eat and partake of and where we get them, they don't draw us closer to God if we partake or if we abstain. Neither one of those things makes a difference. Meat doesn't commend us to God, for if we eat, we're not the better, and if we abstain, we're not the worse. That's what Paul says. You have the liberty as a Christian to get your meat wherever you want, because we understand what idolatry is. But needless to say, I mean, this issue comes up over and over again throughout the New Testament. It was a real stumbling block and a source of real contention in those days among the churches. Now, the root of the problem was that it was unclear biblically what was right. That you couldn't point to chapter and verse in the Old Testament where it specifically said, Thou shalt not eat meat that you bought in the temple shambles. And because that verse could not be found clearly in the Bible, then both cases had to rely on spiritual precepts and principles to come up with their case. It was what you would call a gray area. Both sides had a case, but there was no conclusive answer. Now, we in the church today, fast forward, year 2010. Here we stand. And we don't have shambles. And we don't have much problem with meat. You know, nobody says when you go to their house for burgers where they got it or, you know, how is it cooked. You know, we just kind of eat it and we enjoy it. And, and we don't give much mind to these types of things at all. But we do also know that there's no lack of gray areas in the church today. Amen? What about tobacco, Pastor Nick? What's the Bible say about people that smoke cigarettes or cigars or chew? What, what's the right thing to do in that case? What scripture would you point to for that? What about someone who likes to pull the slot machines or play some roulette from time to time, you know, and likes to gamble a little bit, play some cards? What do you, what do you say? What does the Bible say about doing something like that? What about dancing, you know, and frequenting a, a dance club or a dance night somewhere in some place? What's the right thing to do biblically on that? What's your idea or your opinion about instruments being used in church, specifically a drum set? That's the devil's music, you know, and what's your opinion of doing that in church? What about clothing and dress? How should someone dress when they come into the house of God, a place of worship where God is revered and awed? How should someone dress when they come to church? What if you get called into a work on Sunday? What do you do if they call you in and they say, you got to work today? How, how do we handle these types of things? Now, gray areas in the church, things that are up for debate and that people argue about and divide over and judge and condescend and fight. All of these things are the reason why a person's Christianity or salvation cannot be determined through outward observance. There's too much gray. There's too many gray areas to try to make those kind of distinctions. So what's the answer? You know, you brought up all those things. Are you going to go through and break them down now and tell us what we're supposed to do? How do we deal with these differences, these types of things? Well, Paul gives us the answer of how we're to deal with gray areas as we move through the rest of the chapter. But as we begin, isn't it interesting that Paul calls the person with the strongest convictions the weaker brother? 
I, I would, in my natural mind, think it to be the other way around. That the person with the loosest convictions, the loosest moral strings, if you would, that that would be the person with the weaker faith, but not so. Paul says it's the person with the stricter convictions that actually has the weaker faith. He raises our eyebrows and perks our attention, even at the very get-go of this. Now, before we move forward, I've got to say this. That what we are talking about here as we're reading Romans 14 are gray areas in the Christian faith. Things that are not black and white. There is a lot of black and white in the New Testament scriptures. The Bible absolutely forbids drunkenness. That to be drunk is outright sin and an offense before God. The Bible is crystal clear. There is no gray in that. God makes his mind perfectly known. That fornication or adultery, which is sex in any context outside of the covenant of marriage that it is expressly forbidden by God and it is an affront and an offense to him and that there's no time that he ever accepts that behavior. Pornography and drug use, strictly spoken of, saying it's forbidden by God. Dishonesty and deceit, bitterness, theft, corruption. These are not gray areas. These are not things that we can do and say, well, I'm covered in gray You know, it's grace, and 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 so it's okay, I'm just doing these things. And No, no, listen, the Bible is crystal clear. God says it very clearly. He says, do not be be deceived, God is not mocked. And he lists these things for us that are black and white, and he says, they that do these things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And God stands upon his word, and he means what he says. So I'm not talking about black and whites, I'm talking about gray. Things that the Bible doesn't say specifically that we are to do. How do we deal with these things? Well, the first thing that Paul tells us there, right in verse 1, is he says that we're to receive, we're to receive people without arguing. Someone who's walking in an area or doing something, partaking in a lifestyle that maybe we don't agree with or understand, he says that we're to receive them without arguing. He says, him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations or not for the sake of arguing. The issue for accepting them is not the dispute of their behavior, but it's the faith. Him that is weak in the faith, they're believers. They believe in Jesus Christ. They've trusted him for their salvation. And therefore, Paul says that they are to be received. They're accepted on account of who they believe in, not how they handle their conscience or these convictions that they may or may not have. They're to be received. Now, he tells us as he elaborates on this receiving of them, two things. First of all, that the stronger person is not to despise the weaker. Look at verse 3. It says, let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. That the stronger brother is not to despise the weaker. What does it mean to despise? Well, the word de, D-E at the beginning, means against and spies. It has the word spy in it is to look. So to look against or to look down upon that person. That the stronger person that has less convictions about these things and is more free, they have more liberty, and they're not pricked in their conscience or bothered by partaking in these gray areas, that they're not to despise or look down upon the person that has stronger convictions. We're not to say things like, yeah, they're the frozen chosen, you know. They think they're the only ones, you know, tell that joke about the, you know, you you can put any denomination you want in there, you know, and you get to heaven and there's this room that's quiet and locked and every time you walk by it, you got to be all quiet and finally someone says, why do you got to be quiet? Because they think they're the only ones here, you know, and... You know, we're not to do that. We're not to despise them and condescend and look down. We're not supposed to say things like, well, yeah, they know the Lord, but they're not really spirit-filled. You know, they kind of stand there stringently or sit down. They don't stand up. They don't, you know, they don't, we're not supposed to do that. We're not supposed to think in our minds that they don't know Christ like we do. We're not supposed to look down those of us that are stronger. But then he also goes on to say, and let not him that eateth not... Judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. The second thing he says is that the weak person is not to judge. They're not to say, did you see the way that they dressed? 
Did you see the nerve that they had to come into church dressed that way? Not to judge. I went to this church, and I've heard this so many times you wouldn't believe it. They played drums. They had a drum set in church. That's rock and roll. That's the devil's music. Judging. They're worshiping the devil in there. How can they dare call themselves Christians worshiping in that fashion or partaking in that behavior? Paul says you're not to do this. He says you're to receive them, not to despise, and not to judge. But then, knowing that that would not be good enough for you or for me. He then tells them why. This is why I'm telling you to receive them, not to judge, and not to despise. He gives four quick reasons in the next few verses. The first reason why we're to receive them without arguing is because, first of all, it is not your responsibility to change anybody. Look at verse 4. He says, Who are you that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth, yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. When that person came to Christ, whoever they may be, They did not give their life to you. They did not even give their life to the church. They weren't called upon to sign a card and to join a church that was going to beat them into conformity on the issues. And they didn't sign up for behavior reform. When a person gets saved, they are committing their life to Jesus Christ. When the invitation for salvation goes out, the terms and conditions are very clear. That do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? That He was crucified for your sins? That He rose again for your justification? And that by your faith in Him and the profession of your mouth that you make Him the Lord of your life, He will save your soul. Is there anybody who wants to receive that call for salvation? That was, those are the terms. That's the gospel. The good news that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That while we were yet the enemies of God, Christ died for us. That there was nothing that we could do to save ourselves, but that God, who is rich in mercy, reached in and He rescued us out of the pit of hell because we couldn't save ourselves. And that to whosoever will, let Him come. Jesus invites whosoever will, let Him come. And the invitation is clear and it goes out. And the person who responds to that invitation is not responding to a preacher or a church or a religious movement or a set of codes and rules. They're responding to Jesus Christ. And at that moment, they become servants of Christ. And Jesus does not say, clean up your act and then come. He says, come. And you become the servant of Christ. And He alone takes upon Him the responsibility to change and to conform you into the image that He desires to change you and conform you into. That's the terms and conditions. The Bible claims that He is the author and the finisher of our faith, that He is the perfecter and the sustainer of our souls, and that He who began a good work in you, that He will be faithful to complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. And therefore, the person who gives their life to Christ is in Christ's hand for him to do with them through the heart that which he pleases, that which he wants. And it is not your responsibility or mine to change somebody else or to cause them to conform to the behavior that we think they should have. I read the story of a man who was a deacon in a church and he was constantly being razzed for different things in his life that weren't lining up with what the church desired to see. And so he started wearing a pin every week when he would come to church, a big old pin that just boasted the letters across it, P-B-P-W-M-G-I-F-W-M-Y. And of course that drew much curiosity from those that would see and read and they would say, what in the world does that mean? And he would look at them in the eye and he'd say, please be patient with me, God isn't finished with me yet. There's a lot of truth in that. Why? Because Jesus, when He takes residence within your heart, when you become the servant of Christ, the work that He does in your life is from the inside out. He doesn't address the outward things. He doesn't tell you to change your behavior. He doesn't tell you to get a new wardrobe and a new outfit. He doesn't tell you to stop doing all the things that you've been tied up doing. What He says is, let me into your heart and let me begin to change you. 
And he does a work where he begins to change the wiring. He works on the control panel. He changes the way that we think, the way that we, the way that we conduct ourselves. It's an inside work. And over time, as he does his work and grows up in us, we find that our desires change. That we no longer, by degree, not instantly, but by degree, we no longer desire the things that we used to desire. We begin to see things with a new set of eyes. We begin to perceive things and think through a different mind. Our worldview changes as we're conformed into the image of Christ. But it's Him that does the work in us, and we're all in a different place. Think about the thief that was on the cross. He said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, this day you will be with me in paradise. What time did that guy have to get his act together? How could he, on the cross, with his hands pinned and his feet, you know, nailed, how could he there on that cross say, Lord, I'm going to change my wardrobe as soon as I get down from this. I'm going to give up booze. I'm never going to touch another, you know, controlled substance. I'm not going to steal anything from anybody. I promise, Lord, just, no, no. It was just simply, Lord, have mercy. And Jesus said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. Why? Because it's something that happens in the heart. Not in the clothes that you wear or the outward things that are in your life. I read the story of a girl who made her living as a singer in a blues bar. And that was the way that she knew. That's all she knew. That was her whole life. She was brought up that way. And then she came into a church one Sunday and she gave her life to Jesus Christ. And, and she was asked what she did, and she said she's a singer. And so she was given a chance very early in her walk to sing a song for the church. But as a singer, and knowing only to sing in blues style, in blues fashion, she came dressed like a blues singer, and she sang with blues style to the church. And afterwards, one of the elders of the church, enraged by what he saw and what he heard, came and just tore into her that she would dress suggestively and sing seductively in a way like that in front of the church and just tore her to pieces. And she began to break down into tears and weep because of this, you know, scolding that she was receiving. She didn't know any better. That was all she's known her whole life. And she was expressing her love to God in the only way that she knew how. And the Bible says right here in verse 4 that God accepts her. God accepts her because it's from the heart. I printed this up. It spoke to me. It's called Father Forgets. It's by W. Livingston Learned, and it's old. I don't know how old it is, but it was just this little journal entry that this guy wrote at the spur of the moment, and it was so powerful, and it resonated so true that it's still around today. It says, listen, son, he wrote this. I'm saying this as you lie asleep, one little paw crumpled under your cheek and the blonde curls stickily wet on your damp forehead. I have stolen into your room alone. Just a few minutes ago, as I sat reading my paper in the library, a stifling wave of remorse swept over me. Guiltily, I came to your bedside. And there are things I was thinking, son. I had been cross to you. I scolded you as you were dressing for school because you gave your face merely a dab with a towel. I took you to task for not cleaning your clothes. I called out angrily when you threw some of your things on the floor. At breakfast, I found fault too. You spilled things. You gulped down your food. You put your elbows on the table. You spread butter too thick on your bread. And as you started off to play and I made for my train, you turned and waved a hand and called, Goodbye, Daddy. And I frowned and said in reply, hold your shoulders back. And then it began all over again in the late afternoon. As I came up the road, I spied you down on your knees playing marbles. There were holes in your stockings. I humiliated you before your boyfriends by marching you ahead of me to the house. Stockings were expensive, and if you had to buy them, you would be more careful. Imagine that, son, from a father. Do you remember later when I was reading in the library how you came in timidly with sort of a hurt look in your eyes? When I glanced up over my paper, impatient at the interruption, you hesitated at the door. What is it you want? I snapped. You said nothing, but ran across in one tempestuous plunge and threw your arms around my neck and kissed me. And your small arms tightened with an affection that God had set blooming in your heart and which even neglect could not wither. And then you were gone, pattering up the stairs. Well, son, it was shortly afterwards that my paper slipped from my hands 
and a terrible, sickening fear came over me. What has habit been doing to me? The habit of finding fault, of reprimanding. This was my reward to you for being a boy. It was not that I did not love you. It was that I expected too much of youth. I was measuring you by the yardstick of my own years. Isn't it true that we can do that as parents? But we can do that as Christians as well. We walk with Christ for a period of time. He does a work in our lives. He changes us from the inside out. And the things that He does grip us so tightly and so deeply and so truly that we look at those that are young in the faith, those that don't have the experience in the time that we have. We measure them by the yardstick of our years in Christ and we come down condescendingly upon them. We judge them for the behavior that we see them partaking in and we lose sight of the fact that they belong to Christ. And who are you, who am I, that we would judge another man's servant? The Bible says that God has received him. Paul says, receive them. The second reason why we're to receive them is that God sees the person's heart and you don't. Verse 5. He says, one man esteemeth one day above another. Another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day, he regardeth it unto the Lord. And he that regardeth not the day to the Lord, he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not, and he giveth God thanks. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. What Paul is saying here is that God alone sees why a person is doing what they're doing. If it's the person who abstains from the meat or abstains from cigarettes or abstains from, you know, that, that occasional alcoholic beverage in a social situation, or the person that abstains from whatever the gray area might be, it's because of the Lord and the conviction that God has placed within his heart that he's doing it. And to the person that partakes, their conscience doesn't bother them. That's as unto the Lord too. And only God can see what's going on within a person's heart. And you can't. We can't see what's going on in a person's life. He sees it as unto him, whether you partake or not. And therefore, both positions are equally acceptable to him. Because it's done as unto him. The third reason why we're to receive them is because Christ alone has won the right to judge. Look at verse 9. He says, For to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set at naught or push aside your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. He alone has won the right to judge. In order to be a fair judge whether it's in a human court or in the heavenly court, you have to have all the facts. You cannot make a proper sentencing or judgment or estimation of a person or a situation unless you have all of the facts. And unless you can get inside of a person's mind and see what's going on inside their heart, then you cannot make a proper assessment. Jesus, by His Spirit, searches the heart and the mind. The Bible says that all things are naked and open before the eyes of Him from whom we have to do. And therefore, He has the right, He alone has the right to be the judge within the lives. Have you ever tried to be the judge? I've been the judge, I've been the jury, and I've been the bailiff, the sheriff that drags and hauls someone off. I remember a time when God revealed to me how bad I was at this, you know, early on, it was actually about eight years ago, and I just moved down into this area. And I was freshly ordained, which is a horrible place to be, <laughs> you know, because you think you know everything. I have attained, you know, I got a certificate, you know, they, 
I'm signed up, you know, and it's official, you know, this whole thing. And so I came down and I was having dinner with a whole group of church leadership people. There were worship leaders and uh, there were people that were deacons and, you know, uh, the pastor, you know, the whole the whole team was there. And, and we were having and, and, and I came from a very conservative church uh, background, you know, where I was discipled and ordained. I mean, we were taught that you just you live right. You keep things tight. You know, we were very conservative on the gray area kind of a thing. And, and so it was a little bit of a shock to me when some of the people on the team of ministry began to order, you know, a beer, a cocktail. And, and I kept it, I swallowed it, you know, that I'm not in my, uh, this isn't my place, you know, and I played the humble card, you know, and just, I, this is okay, I'm just sitting here. But then, through some miraculous stroke of God's providence, someone turned to me and said, hey, Nick, Pastor Nick, what's your opinion on Christians drinking alcohol, more than that, people in ministry drinking alcohol. And I thought, well, God, you sent me here for such a time as this. <laughs> and so before I could give a second thought and let the words stew in my mind before they came out, I said, I think it's sin. And that word echoes, sin, 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 sin. And it went through, and I saw it go into the ears of all the people there at the table. And I saw their, you know, head kind of turn, side turn a little bit as it hit them. And, and then the second wave, sin, sin, sin. And then, it, you know, and, and, and I cannot tell you the firestorm that erupted over that single phrase that I made there at that table that night. When I, as the one who sees all things and knows all things, the judge, the righteous potentate of the whole world, when I took a gray area and I threw black paint all over it and I said, it is sin, it's sin because I know everything. <laughs> the debate and the firestorm that was stirred up within that church over that statement was so tragic and so messy. Such an education for me. More expensive than four years at an Ivy League university. Because the debate came up then. Okay, well then where do you draw the line? Why is that sin? Where's the, where's the chapter and verse for that? Where do you make that thing? Well, you know, and then now I have to stand on it. Oh, well, I put black paint on it, so I'm, this is black paint. So I'm, I'm taking this one to the grave. You know, and so they, that, the, the things began. And it didn't just stay at the dinner table. It went on into the weeks and months that followed. Well, what about this? What about this then? If, that, if that's sin, then what about this behavior? What about that thing? And now all of a sudden, I'm writing the mission in the Talmud. I'm sitting here, and I am now the author of 16 holy books defining the, the, the ins and outs of how to handle every little situation. And then finally, it came right down to me just saying, well, it's just not good for you. And the trump card was then played as someone looked at me and said, well, what about mayonnaise? As I was spreading mayonnaise on the bread of my sandwich. Well, that's just stupid, I said, you know, and I ate my sandwich. <laughs> but the next morning, I was reading the Bible and I was reading the book of Galatians because that's where I was in my devotions. And I read through the whole book of Galatians that morning, which is all about liberty. The liberty that we have as Christians. The liberty wherewith Christ has set us free, where he says, be not again entangled in the yoke of bondage, the law that you were set free from but enjoy the liberty that you've been given in Christ. And I remember hearing that still small voice speak very clearly to my heart. And he said, you, Nick, are a big, fat legalist. And I swallowed it. It was right. I was a big, fat legalist. Christ alone has the right to judge. I don't have the right to judge someone's actions, why they're doing what they're doing the condition of their heart before God when they partake of this thing or that thing, it's not my place. I became an instant Pharisee, and because of that, I was Sadducee. It was bad. Didn't have the facts. And the bottom line is that I was the weaker brother, because what I was doing is that I was using my abstinence in that situation as a costume to appear more spiritual than I really was. And that's what legalism is. 
It's a costume whereby you can appear more spiritual than you really are. And Jesus looks and he says, you're the weaker brother. Operating in that capacity. Christ alone has won the right to judge. And then Paul's fourth reason why we're to receive the weaker brother is because you only need to be concerned with yourself. Verse 12. He says, so then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. You're not going to give an account for what someone else is doing. You don't have to answer for their behavior. You don't have to answer for the decisions that they make. You only have to answer for the decisions that you make and give account for the things that you allow and the things that you do. Let me ask you, Christian, how are you doing in your relationship with Jesus Christ? Are you growing in the grace and the knowledge of Him? Are you ever walking closer with Him and experiencing Him in your life and growing and letting Him change you from the inside out? Or do you spend your time worrying about what other people are doing and hiding behind religious convictions? How are you doing? Do you hide behind someone else's liberty to make yourself look more spiritual? Paul says, receive him. Receive the weaker brother and don't despise or judge the stronger. We're to receive one another. Now, that's Paul's first point concerning these gray areas. How to handle gray areas is that we're to receive people. We're to love them. The second thing he gives to us as we move on in this text concerning these gray areas is how to handle them. How do we handle these things, Lord? is he says, do what's right according to the law of love. Not the law of morality and mosaic, you know, theology, but rather do what's right according to the law of love. Look at verse 13. He says, let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know... And am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. Swallow that. That's kind of a hard statement. He says, but to him that esteems anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, if you're partaking of the meat that was sold in the shambles, if that's causing your brother to be grieved because it convicts him it bothers his conscience knowing where that meat came from he says now you're not walking in love that walk is not charitably you're not loving him destroy not him with your meat for whom christ died don't let your freedom and your desire and your ability to enjoy a nice piece of succulent medium rare tender seasoned beef don't let that Be stronger in your life than your love for that person for whom Christ died. He says, for the sake of meat, destroy not him for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. He's saying that the issue is not about what is allowed and what isn't. What does God want and what doesn't he? He's saying that's not the way to think. The way to think is what should I do that's going to best benefit and edify everyone else in the body of Christ? How is this behavior, whether it's my liberty or whether it's something that I'm wrestling with in my conscience spiritually... How is this going to affect everybody else in the church? And he says, base your decision upon that. Gray areas, don't worry about trying to shove them into a category of black or white, yes or no, wrong or right, but rather weigh it out as it's going to affect the rest of the body of Christ. That's how you look at it. It's the law of loving each other, not the law of Moses. For meat, verse 20, destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. Hast thou faith? And by implication, are you strong in your faith? You're able to partake in some of these things? It doesn't bother you or stumble you? He says, have it to yourself before God. 
Happy is the man that condemneth not himself in the thing that he allows. And he that doubts is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith, for whatsoever is not of faith is sin. He's saying to these people, essentially, that there are certain people that will never be able to get past certain convictions. That they were brought up a certain way, under a certain tradition, or there was something that was just ingrained in them. Like someone who was a Jew that would be given a ham sandwich. Now, as free as they are in Christ, they know Acts chapter 10 when God said, Peter, kill and eat. You know, they know the law, everything's right. But just something about how they've been brought up, they will never be able to eat a piece of pork and feel right about it. A Jew in those days. It's just not going to happen. They can't. Regardless. Or, or other things. The way someone dresses for church. Or, or, you know, or shouldn't dress for church. Or the style of music that's in church. There's certain things that are just ingrained in people that they'll never accept it. And at the same time, there are some people that ha- are, were completely enslaved by certain things prior to their salvation. There are people that were outright alcoholics. They were addicted to drugs, even, you know, tobacco, nicotine. They were addicted to these things, and they tried everything they could to get free of it, and it was only when they came to Christ that they found freedom. That only Jesus was powerful enough to break the power of that addiction within their life. And then what happens is that they see someone that has liberty. Someone who didn't have that addiction, someone who doesn't have that struggle, doesn't have that problem, and they see them from across the way having a drink. And it emboldens them, or perhaps stumbles them into thinking, well, I can do that. If they're a Christian, and they're doing it, and it seems okay with them, then it might be alright with me. And so they go, and then they partake in that thing, and they fall off the wagon. They're completely steeped and brought right back into the bondage that they were freed from when they came to Christ. They were delivered from Him, and they see you doing it, and so they're emboldened. And the result is that if you flaunt your liberty, then you can destroy the work of God. And Paul's saying that that's not love. You might be following your convictions or your lack thereof. You might be free to partake in these things, but in the process you don't realize what damage you might be doing to someone else. So remember the law of love when it concerns these gray areas. Don't try to shove it into a black and white, justifying certain behaviors and condemning it in others that you see but rather see the effect it's going to have on everyone else within the church. And then finally, concerning this gray area and how we're to deal with it, in verse 17 and 18, Paul says to us essentially that Christianity is not behavior, but belief. It goes right back to where we began with the study. He says, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It's not outward, physical, external things. That's not what makes us Christians. It isn't the way we dress and that we don't smoke, we don't chew, and we don't go with girls who do. You know, that that's not what makes us Christians. It's not the defining characteristic. It's not meat and drink, but rather it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. What's that? Those are inward, spiritual invisibles. You can't see any of those things. You can't see righteousness. I mean, you could see righteous behavior, but anybody can... Judas, for three and a half years, had righteous behavior. But you can't see if someone has been declared righteous by the Son of God. That's between them and God. That's a work of redemption within the heart. You can't see it. Peace and joy, that's the fruit of the Spirit. But listen, there's a lot of people in Hollywood that, hey, they put on the face of peace and joy all the time. You can act those things out. But whether it's truly at work within the heart and the life of someone, that's completely unclear to you. Is it a fruit or a vegetable? I don't know. It's a banana. You know, you can never tell. It's invisible. Now, righteousness happens at the moment you give your life to Christ. He takes away your sin and he imputes his righteousness to you. And it's something that had nothing to do with you. It wasn't your behavior. It wasn't when you signed up. It wasn't a declaration of change. It was simply, I trust in you, Christ, for my salvation. I can't save myself. And righteousness happens within your heart. Has nothing to do with behavior. Has everything to do with belief. Peace and joy is fruit. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. 
patience, kindness, meekness, gentleness, self-control. You know, he goes on. But that's the fruit that comes from the presence of the Spirit within your life. How is fruit grown? Is fruit grown when someone paints a picture and then picks it off the page and hands it to you? No, fruit is something that's grown and cultivated. The fruit of the Spirit is something that's grown and cultivated within the heart. It happens as Christ is allowed access and He begins to do His work within your life. That's where fruit spiritually comes from. Now, if Christianity were meat and drink, simply behavior, then we could judge. We could say, well, that person is not a Christian because look how they're behaving. But the Bible says it's not meat or drink. It's not behavior. It's belief. And since it's not, we must love. And that's how Paul concludes his argument in chapter 15, the first few verses there. He says, we then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. He's saying, be like-minded to each other. Love one another. Serve each other. Do things that are going to edify and not tear down. Demonstrate the love of Christ and don't please yourself that ye may be with one mind and one, or that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, receive ye one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God. How did Christ receive us? He received us when we were at our worst, right? He received us when we were his enemies, when we had no inheritance. Nothing to boast of. When we were ugly, wretched sinners, that's when he received us. And Paul is saying in conclusion to this, that's how you're to receive one another. As though they're in their worst possible state, spill the love of Jesus Christ on them, no matter what they look like, no matter what they're doing. That's your responsibility, Christian. That's what you've been called to do. You're not to judge one another. You're to love one another. It's the more excellent way. The agape love of Christ being demonstrated. Christianity is trusting Christ for salvation. You cannot save yourself. It's making a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, verbally and publicly acknowledging that you believe and you receive His gift. That's what it means to come to Christ. And then, as He's allowed access into your life, He begins to do the work of changing you. He doesn't leave you the way He found you. He says, come as you are. But then He begins to clean you from the inside out. That's how He works. Brad, you can come. We're going to close. I talk to a lot of people that when I share this with them, they say, I can't come to Christ. I can't come. And I say, well, why not? Why can't you come to Christ? I'll say, do you believe? And they say, oh yeah, I believe. I believe. The Bible, I believe in Christ. But I say, well, why don't you come to Him? I can't. I've got to get my life right first. I've got to get some things together. I, I mean, we still do certain things on the weekend, me and my wife, you know, that, that I know I, I can't do anymore. And so I can't come to Christ in these things. I still drink. I still smoke. I still lust. I still harbor this bitterness and this hatred within my life. I can't come to Christ right now. And, and I love to say it, but it's always frustrating to just say, listen, come to Christ. He doesn't tell you to do any of that. What he says that is if you believe him, just receive Do you believe Him? Yeah. Do you want to know Him? Do you want to be saved? Yeah, you can be saved. I want to be saved. Well then listen, are you willing to just ask Jesus to come into your life? I can't. And then you you go back around the thing. But people, they stumble over this thing. Listen, Jesus said, come. The invitation is to come. He says, whosoever will, let him come. Let him that is a thirst, let him come and drink freely of the water of life. You simply come to Christ. You confess before God and you say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I know that I can't save myself. I can't even deliver myself from the things I know I need to be delivered of so that I think I can come to you. I can't do any of it. And Jesus simply says, I see your heart, the position of it, and I'm willing to come and to save your life. And he comes into your heart as it stands in that position. And he comes in and he begins to do his work. 
He begins to work in the cesspool of sin that still lies within your life. And little by little, he declares his faithfulness that he's going to complete the work that he has begun within you. He accepts you as you are. He transforms you from within. He doesn't call you to conform from without. Every religion of the world says, do this and then you will live. It's Jesus alone that looks at you and he says, live first through me and I'll do this in you. It's the power of the gospel that Paul is preaching. And it's the good news, the gospel that's being preached to you right now. That no matter what state you're in, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter what presently has you chained to the point where you think, I'll never be free of this. Jesus Christ looks at you personally here tonight and he says, let me into your life. If you would simply call upon me, you will be saved and I'll begin to do my work within you. You can know and experience the freedom from sin, the peace and the joy that can come from my salvation if you'll simply open your heart and respond and let me in.